All right, we are back for another episode of Magazine, the podcast where you get your gay and geeky topics from a black gay perspective. I'm Nick. And I'm Victor. And let me tell you, I thought um, fall was on its way, but it is hot as ass <laughs> out here, and I am much unhappy about that. It's hot. It's been hot over here. We've been cooling off at night. I'm in the valley, so we've been cooling off a lot at night. Um, and our air conditioner bill is high. It's three hundred dollars. Mm, I've seen higher up here. Um, it's cutting into my fun money, and I don't feel like paying it. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna give them like a hundred dollars this week. And Girl, then, getting them fifteen dollars like they suit and loans. <laughs> well. I'm treating them like Kmart um, on the daily system. Like you get a hundred dollars this week, and maybe after next week, uh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Just a mess. Well, yeah. we are not alone. This episode, we have a very special guest joining us this week. He is a writer at Into. He is a podcaster on Slayer Fest. He's all around badass on these internets, and we uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Matthew Rodriguez. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us in this 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 little podcast we do. <laughs> no, no, I I'm super happy to be here. <laughs> so let's just jump right into it because we got some things to talk about. Mm-hmm. And our Aunt May's tea. So let's pour us a strong, healthy cup and get into it. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I mean, it's been a mix of stuff. It's been some sad stuff. It's been some interesting stuff. Uh, what should we start with? Oh, let's start with that bullshit with Psylocke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if y'all don't know, Psylocke, Betsy, or Elizabeth Braddock, um, is the twin sister of Brian Braddock, who is Captain Britain. She was created back in 1976 or 1978, one of the years, um, where she is a telepath, and she's also a fashion model. So she dyed her hair purple, and you know she did her time on in the screens and on the magazine covers. Um, but if you read classic. Uh, Captain Britain, she was an active member of that comic um, where she used to use her powers a lot. Um, and at one point she became Captain Britain, but she was beaten by Slaymaster. Um, he took her eyes out. And then Mojo, um, for those of you who watched the cartoon, you know who Mojo is. He gave her um, a tr- uh, a tronic, <laughs> bionic eyes. Um, and she ended up joining the X Men. And then in 1990, um, Mojo got his hands on her again and turned her into a Japanese woman. Now, that wasn't supposed to be permanent, but let's say what, almost 30 years later, <laughs> she remained Japanese and a ninja. But recently in the um, mystery of, of Magnapore, um, the return or the hunt for Wolverine comic, um, she was um, somewhat killed by Sapphire Six uh, Sticks. That's her name, interesting name, um, where she was a uh, kind of, her soul was taken from her. And so she was trying to gather her pieces together from her life and she was able to do it, but mostly from her past life. So she was able to come back, but now she is a white woman again. 
<laughs> so it has caused a lot of talk. Um, a lot of people, are, some people are excited, some people are not. Some people never knew she was a white woman. Um, but yeah, she's been many years as a white woman and then she became Japanese and now she's back. Um, but it, it is kind of causing a lot of stir. And according to Chris Claremont, um, who, who created the character as well as um, he wrote her for many years, he always said it wasn't meant to be permanent. She was supposed to be back to normal within a few um, issues, but that never happened after he left X-Men. So yeah, that's what's going on. And some people are really not happy about that. How do y'all feel about that? Uh, Matt, uh, Matthew, I'll let you go. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting? First of all, behind, besides the whole Rachel Dolezal-ness of this all, <laughs> that um, it's so funny because Psylocke, well, first of all, Psylocke is obviously, of all the X-Men, I would say she's probably one of the most hypersexualized in most of her depictions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, her outfits are always barely there. Um, and she is playing on this trope of like... Um, I mean, she is playing with the idea of, you know, obviously a lot, a lot of times Asian women are uh, portrayed as like docile and submissive. So she is kind of subverting that, but she's also, you know, a white woman. So it's like, it's very, it's, it's very interesting. And I always say this whole thing made me think about how she was one of the few comic book characters who was like cast so well for the movie because she was played by someone who was half white and half Asian. Mm-hmm in Olivia Munn. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm not as big on like comic lore as I am on like movies and uh, cinematic and uh, TV representations, yeah. but it's, I mean, the whole thing is obviously a little troubling. It's just like the idea that one can change races. So, so you know, back and forth that we can take a character and keep changing their race again and again is a little disturbing, I guess. The idea that like, there was some white guy who invented a character and it was like, oh, well, their race keeps changing. That's a little weird. Right. It, it reminds me of basically a comic book version of Ghost in the Shell. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. I'm like, oh, y'all just have to have every damn thing, don't you? But it's also interesting that the editor-in-chief is notoriously known for being an Asian person writing as an Asian person, speaking as an Asian person, even though he was a white male. So it's a very interesting dynamic how this is playing out. Um, we posted on, on uh, Megasheen Twitter about, cause some people did not believe that she was ever white. So we show like, here's classic pictures of her as a white woman. She had that Victorian hairstyle, it was horrible, but um, she, yeah, it's interesting to look back at her as, you know, when she was, she was considered not the weakest, but she had to wear like armor um, in fights because she was just, as a psychic, she wasn't like really a fighter. You know, you had Rogue, you had Dazzler who didn't have to hurt you, to, be, to touch you, to hurt you. And then you had Storm. And so you had all the, these other women around her that did, it was super powerful. And then you just had her who was a psychic. So she had to wear armor. So you really didn't see her, her face that much or anything. So I, I think it's kind of fascinating that, you know, I look back at the, I remember when she came, first she became Lady Mandarin. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> she fought, uh, which is an interesting name, but she fought Wolverine and everything. She was brainwashed. And then they had to really put her story together that what happened to her, just to explain to everybody, they went through this thing called the Sieges Perilous. Um, she came out 
not knowing who she was. Um, this guy who was an enemy of the Mandarin um, took her in and took his dead lover's mind and my merged her with, with, with Betsy and became this ninja woman. So <laughs> that's how that all happened. It's an interesting story. You have to go back and look. And it's, Mojo has something to do with it because he sent um, Spiral to help, to help them do this and bound them body and soul. So it's very interesting. It's a very interesting story. It's kind of weird too, because the, 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 the real ninja woman was in the body of Betsy, the white woman. And then she turned out to have legacy, uh, the legacy virus and then she died. So it's a whole lot of stuff with this entire storyline, a whole lot of mess. Ugh. That's, that's all I have. Ugh. <laughs> so we see how long this will last, because I don't know. We'll see how the fans take it. Now, we know the Comics Gate fans will love it. Yeah, let's jump on into that, because... So let's, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get into this. So we also had Comics Gate. We talked about these folks before. These people are basically, they don't, they feel like diversity is being forced in comics. We're talking about politics too much in comics. And they're mostly a lot of white men. A lot of them are failed white writers for comics and, and all that stuff. But they have been led by a few comic artists that have been in the field many years ago, but they're not no longer working. Um, but recently, um, an issue happened to where um, some of these fans mentioned Dwayne Cook. And Dwayne Cook is a, was an artist. Um, he passed away. And so they mentioned that, you know, Dwayne Cook, I think he was a writer and artist, but they talked about how he would have loved to be a part of Comics Gate. And his wife said, no, no, sir, no. Actually, he would, he did, he would hate all of you. He does not like this at all. He wouldn't like none of this type of stuff. And they attacked his wife or his widow. Um, it wasn't until a few writers and artists jumped in um, to defend her. And one of them was Jeff Lemire. Now, Jeff Lemire, he's been writing a lot of different comics um, over the years, like Essex County, Sweet Tooth, Old Man Logan, which is what we got Logan from. Um, he jumped in to really defend her. And it was very interesting because he brought up a point that he said a lot of people liked his tweet, but he didn't see a lot of voices speaking out against them. So we were slowly, if you if people kind of watch or if you want to um, Google Comics Gate, you can see where a lot of people came out and denounced them. But yeah, Comics Gate is basically a bunch of, it seems a lot of white males and some black men, because I actually looked it up and looked at people who said we are Comic Gate, Comics Gate who just feels like there's too many politics in comics and there's too many diverse people in comics and why we have to make somebody black when they're supposed to be white and why is this dragon a dragon who speaks this way? Like they're very interesting people. They're kind of trash, but that was kind of the big hoopla they have. And again, we've talked about them before. So I didn't know if you, how y'all felt about this, but I, I was glad to see more comic book folks jump out and really talk against Comicscape. Those people just need to find a hobby. Like, my God, Do, are you that miserable? And let's not forget, like, comics have always been political. You've had Superman fighting Nazis. You've had Wonder Woman fighting Nazis. You have the whole genesis of X-Men being about stereotypes and the hatred of people towards another group of people. It's like, where do y'all think these stories come from? It's well, you know just what, you know like, what the issue is, is that 
I think a lot of comics, like they play into the idea of the underdog or the powerless. And for a lot of like white nerds out there, they feel like they are the powerless. And then when people who actually experience structural marginalization or oppression try to talk about how comics relate to their experience, these and they say like, oh, there, there needs to be room for us to be represented in these comics. The people who already see themselves reflected, like underdog white people, they're like, what do you mean? Like, this is about me. Like, this is my thing. And like, I'm the one who's being depicted here. And they feel like there are going to be fewer depictions of them. And it's funny to me because it's like, we didn't say that we were going to go and like Fahrenheit 451 every comic for <laughs> this, boo. Like, you're still going to have every single story you've ever had since the beginning of time. No one's going to go ahead and like delete the old Superman films. You can still watch them. Like, right. we're saying that, you know, it's interesting that for stories that are about oppression and marginalization, they actually don't reflect who in America is currently experiencing like structural and has since America's beginnings, structural oppression and marginalization. And like, they we're actually asking for a correction. Like it's like, they need to issue a retraction. They need to get on board. And there's just a bunch of people who are mad about it. And it's kind of stupid. Yeah. Yeah. They can stay mad. I mean, you can either get right or get left. But I, I just find it really interesting how they will attack people. I mean, this is, I mean, Dwayne Cook's widow um, and she has a name. Let me quit calling her a widow. But she, um, it, you know, her name is Marsha. And the fact that they even harassed her um, is just interesting. And I saw some of the tweets um, calling her, you know, a nasty woman and all these things. And I just don't understand where did we get to a point where you, you just, it's all fantasy. You know, when did the fantasies become completely white? And you were right, Nick, you mentioned how the history of everything, you think about like, hey, we wouldn't have Captain America if it wasn't political. That's his whole thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> he was created to fight the Nazis. It's just kind of funny sometimes just to look at what their arguments are. Um, and sometimes it's kind of fun to pick art fights with them because I, I do it every once in a while. And it's fun. But then I like drama. So. It's just funny to see how people react when they're not the protagonist of one story for yeah. one single second in one installation of, I mean, comics talk about world building. I mean, they constantly do new storylines. There's several universes and you have like Miles Morales is one Spider-Man once and it's gotta be an issue. It's just ridiculous. It is. It really is. So, what else do we have? Let's see. We're, we're kind of going through them. Um, what else we have? We do have... Um, well, that is kind of kind of sad news, if we want to go ahead and get into that. Um, but we can talk about Jamel Miles. Jamal, is it Jamel Miles? I'm going to make sure I'm pronouncing his name right. But we can talk about him, just because it's... It was it was something that I, I just didn't think I would see for a while. Um, and we, we haven't had a wave of this lately, but if we but we'll get into it. So in Colorado, um, a young young gay boy, he was nine years old, committed suicide. Um, he was bullied by his classmates and it was only within four days of school. And mm-hmm. basically what happened was um, he came out over the summer, told his mom. His mom was like, okay. 
he wanted to tell other people because, you know, he was, you know, feeling good, feeling, you know, feeling good about himself. And he got to school and next thing you know, they said within four days, um, he committed suicide because he was bullied. And I think his sister was saying that, you know, this was happening too. And the mother was devastated. She just, he didn't come and talk to her about it. But it's really, really heart-wrenching when we think about what's happening, still happening in the schools. And no one's helping. And I, I, I cannot believe that no one saw this, that nobody at the school saw that. But yeah, it was just really sad to hear that. You know, I had, um, you these people that were always tech, saying, oh, uh, joking on social media saying that, oh, I would never have a gay, a gay uh, child or what would you do if your son came out and say he was gay or I would kill my son if you, you know, stupid shit like this. I was like, this is what happens when misogyny, uh, homophobia, toxic masculinity, all these things boil over. You get shit like this. And that kid took his life because those things were love. Those, that toxic masculinity, that homophobia was learned from a parent. And this just didn't need to happen at all. Yeah. And it, I've been trying to avoid it. I've been trying to, I, I, in, in a sense of like, I've, it's hard to see, you know, Twitter keeps, you know, will always show you his face. And it's hard to not, I don't, it's hard for me to look at his face. And I couldn't help but to think of, of all of us when we were you know at that age and how we were feeling and what was really going on and so it's, mm-hmm. i can't imagine what his family is going through i really can't you know it's 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 about you know there are so many there, there should have been there should be for for young queer people so many safety nets or just things that are there for us you know i doubt um, I know this took place in Colorado. I don't know if it was in a metro area or not. I need to look into the story more. But um, I, you know, how much were the school counselors, like, versed in LGBTQ stuff? And, like, did they, I mean, if, you know, were they, do they talk to students when they come back from vacation? You know, this was obviously at the beginning of the school year. And it's, like, there, it has to do with family support and then also like structural support in school and it just also it's it's so interesting to me because I remember being bullied for being like a feminine young kid when I was in school and Mm -hmm. my sister is an educator and she talks to me about how much you know like there's so many anti-bullying problems in schools and anti-bullying programs in schools now right like it's there's so much about like students reporting bullying and having avenues to talk about it. But that doesn't mean that the bullying stops. Like the avenues might be there but to report it, but like the students still need to take advantage of it. What's not happening is that like people's hearts and minds are not being changed about LGBTQ people. And so they like feed their kids with that bullshit. And then kids 
don't know that they're con- they haven't like their brains haven't yet formed they don't know that their consequences have actions yet right so it's it's just this like really it's this maelstrom that we expect young queer people to navigate with you know finesse and that they're just gonna it's gonna get better and it's just gonna come out all right and that's not always the case and it's really terrible how we kind of leave our queer youth out to navigate the world by themselves most of the time. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, again, it's, it's tough already being a young kid, especially when you're in school. And I never thought of it that way. The fact that we really are out there on our own. We're really out there trying to fit in, trying to figure things out, trying to understand why we're feeling the way we're feeling. And like you, Matthew, I was teased with being so feminine too, because, you know, I always feel like, you know, the, the queers in the 80s, <laughs> we had we had it rough because I think about all the things that we we identified with so many things that were so feminine and, and all that and it was weird to some people and no one we had nowhere to really kind of talk to or let alone try to understand what we're going through. But to still know that this is still happening now, that we're still having these interesting um, situations and no real outlet for our queer kids is it's interesting to me because I feel like it's 2018 you would think by now we will have something or some awareness so it's it's I don't know I, I hope that this incident helps this school get its act together and really think about how they're really working with our queer kids yeah I don't I don't know if it will I honestly don't know if it will and I don't know if it's about the school, but when I, as a reporter, as someone who thinks really heavily about how do you report on suicide, because there is such a real thing as like suicide contagion and like how does reporting on it maybe further the problem. So like, what are the useful ways to report on something like this? Yeah. I am really cognizant of like, how does, how, how do, is there a way to tell the story that is hopeful or like how do we tell the story so that other school districts maybe things in Colorado will not change for a little while but like will there be an administrator in Minnesota will there be an an administrator in another state um, that sees this and understands the need for you know early childhood or even or early adolescent interventions for queer youth right so there has to be some good that can come of it in terms of like the larger look, like how do we, cause you know, as there's more and more, as queer people are included more and more in media, I think there will be instances of people coming out younger and younger, you know, like, because we need models to understand what that is. There are some people who never saw a gay person until they were in their late teens and they were like, oh, that's who I am. And then I saw gay people growing up as young as like 10 and 11. Like I watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So Tara and Willow happened when I was 11 years old and I knew what gay was from that. And I knew that applied to me, but with men. So it's like, there will be instances of um, children coming out younger and younger, but there needs to be a similar rapid shift in making sure that there are, you know, tools available to queer youth to succeed. And that's not what we're seeing happen. Yeah. I just, Very much so. Yeah, I, I just hope that something changes. And again, our hearts go out to the family um, of this incident because this this has to end. We shouldn't. I don't. I don't want a string of this. 
because I remember it was it, it was so much happening like what a few years ago and it it didn't it just felt like it wasn't going to end I just don't want this to begin that and I also don't want our quick kids to feel like that's the only way out or the only way only solution so I really hope there's we just have to keep promoting and being out there and let people know there's there's other outlets out there to help and hopefully some families are thinking about like where else can we go what other outlets we can use what can be best you know that maybe it's not happening in our schools but we can go to you know a center or, or lgbt resource center in town or near town or somewhere just something i just don't want this to start a, a horrible trend mm-hmm. right oh goodness well going to a, another sad story so i i Sorry, everybody. You know, we get one of those stories, but um, in some ways, this does have to do with gaming. So, as a lot of you know, I think his name was David Katz. Um, he ended up losing a game, right? I think it was him. And he, there was doing a tournament. It was like some type of tournament going on. Yeah, um, it was a, a Madden uh, football tournament in uh, Jacksonville. Yeah. So he lost and could not handle it and next thing you know he's he just took a gun out there and 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 ended up killing two people left 10 people injured from the gunshots and um one of them was um was a non-gunshot injury but you know it was it was still tragic enough and they basically said that um it, it was just he was just really upset about losing and I was like, okay, but it, it was just kind of interesting, and that once again, it's kind of interesting that how this wasn't really talked about by our government. Um, other things were, but the, not really touching on this issue. But it also kind of started up conversations about gaming again, about how violent games are. And I was like, but this was Madden, <laughs> so I don't know how you want to <laughs> twist that into violence in video games. They tried that same shit when Mortal Kombat first came out, how, you know, playing these ga- these uh, ultra-violent games will produce violent people. They tried that shit with Grand Theft Auto. You know, I'm so sick of people trying to correlate violent video games with that violent video, playing violent video games equals violent people. That is not the case. I have been gaming since the atari and sure i do get upset when i'm playing video games at uh, different times but i'm not going to go out and get a semi semi-automatic and start shooting folks like this is crazy and the the guy one of the guys that was killed they were in the middle of streaming and uh he was streaming on twitch and I made the mistake of watching that video and that was very tough to hear and see. Um, and I won't, I haven't reposted or anything cause I don't think you should go out looking for that kind of stuff. But yeah. I've heard a lot of people say that there's no kind of security at these tournaments, which is very, I'm not surprised, but I'm very disappointed because a lot of people can take a loss like this in a a video game very seriously. 
like you saw, um, we just uh, finished up with the, the Overwatch League. And, you know, they were playing at a huge tournament. I think they were playing in New York. Like, um, and you could see that there was almost, there was, there was always a possibility of something like this happening. And unfortunately, because of our lax ass gun control laws, this shit happens. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's fucking ridiculous. Very. That's, you know, that's, that's, and it's interesting because this, uh, this David person, he had a history of mental illness and that's been coming out recently and everything else. So it's, it's a lot going on here. Um, but yeah, they, it comes back down to the gun laws. It comes back down to the fact that I think Trump just what he, I'm not sure if he, if it's completely struck down, but now it's, that's not, you know, I think people with mental illness can still, you know, purchase guns and it's just like, okay, we're, we're not, we're not, we're not listening. We're not paying attention to what's happening here. But yeah, it's very interesting that, uh, this is happening. This is this is continuing to happening, and it's going to happen again, and probably two more times before we even reach the middle of September. You know how this goes. So, mm-hmm. everybody will send their useless thoughts and prayers, and then it'll happen again. Then everybody will send their thoughts and prayers, and it'll happen again. I mean, the time when uh, Sandy Hook happened. And we didn't do anything. That's when I knew. I was like, okay, y'all just don't give a shit. Y'all let anybody die. It's money. It's about the money. Money they get from the NRA, which is interesting. They're supposed to be broke, but apparently. Well, I think that the whole NRA is broke thing was really just a ploy to get donations. But mm-hmm. that's, But I, um, I just want to, I think the one thing I want to add is that I mean, anyone who plays any video game online knows that there's a lot of like toxic masculinity in the gaming community. And I I know whenever there's a shooting, one of the things that people really try to point to is the role that toxic masculinity plays in mass shootings and how there's always some kind of thing about, I think just, you know, like, I mean, a lot of people, as you know, for um, a lot of shootings that have happened in the last year, it has to do with like, um, some a man being made to be feel like a fool or or a man being dumped by a girl or something like that you know like there's some aspect to it that has to do with like how we treat our young boys and how we and how we teach them like what success is and 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 all and the pressures we put on men and and the wrong lessons that we teach them so i i think i for for this i just also want to underscore like what role toxic masculinity put what role toxic masculinity played in the story, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, goodness. It's, this been, it's, yeah. This it's just a horrible a tragedy in ER, you know, to, for the people and families and everything. I, I can't imagine what you're going through. This is really upsetting. It's just, this has, that has to end as well. Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's flip it and give the last story, which is not really sad, but it's kind of interesting. I like to say that word. My favorite word is interesting. Um, well, you, if you remember the drama with all of the things with James Gunn and Guardians of the Galaxy cast, who was like basically saying 
you know, please bring back James. And then Batista basically <laughs> saying he will walk, he will leave, you know, if they don't bring him back. <laughs> but, but Disney just basically put this whole movie on delay. They just delayed it, put it on hiatus. So it's, it's indefinitely in hiatus. See when you do clownery? I, I was like, well, and it, it's interesting. I was, I was like, okay, Disney has spoke, and they basically said, okay, well, we can put this all on hold. You know what's interesting with me with this story is that, mm-hmm. like, obviously nothing that he said is okay, and I don't, yeah. especially because, like, people are like, it was 10 years ago. I'm like, he was still 30-something when he said these things. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, let's not just, it wasn't like he was 10 years ago, like, some silly 19-year-old, even though still that would be unokay at 19. But the point is that... Um, <laughs> It's in the one part of this that I always think about is like how many times people have complained to Disney about certain things, especially like people of color and queer people. Mm-hmm. And we ask for our voices to be heard. And then that this story was unearthed by like a right wing conspiracy theorist. Yeah. And like Disney was like, Oh, we gotta, we gotta capitulate to the right wing cons- conspiracy theorists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's always the funny part to me is like, and I'm not saying that it's right or wrong that they listen to him. I'm actually just saying that it's funny whose voices get heard. Yeah. Ultimately, maybe the goal for a lot of people was a really good goal of getting someone who makes rape jokes and whatnot, you know, getting them fired. That's obviously a good thing, but um, it's interesting from where the message is heard, right? Because I'm sure if it was a feminist organization or someone that found this out about James Gunn, it would not be taken as seriously as you know, right wing conspiracy theorist Mike Cernovich. Yeah, which is yeah, we talked about that, like the fact that it was Mike, and then it just and people not really checking about who Mike was, and we were like, Disney, did you even look at who what this 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 guy is just as worse as James? So it's really interesting that you know they took this day, but I wonder if they felt like they didn't want the pressure from those group of crazies i don't know they just felt like they didn't want to be bothered with all that but then someone brought to my attention that there was like maybe something was going on from the inside we have no idea this was just what they needed to kind of move forward and i was like "Mm, you never know but um it's interesting that they you know they just basically said that you know we we're going to just put this on an indefinite hiatus um and regroup and try to get a new director um they have pushed back all the photography until next year um the, even the timeline has been pushed so this movie can come out or not come out they're just gonna and you know if they're smart they will get they got plenty of directors within their own group to kind of work this out um or they could hire ava you know you never know what they will do you know, get somebody to jump in here and get this movie out but you know i think nick you, you said this before oh I'm, I'm good if we don't have another Guardians of the galaxy movie yeah, ain't nobody really checking. I think, like, out of all the trilogies so far, The Guardians has been, eh, the weakest. And Dave Bautista's acting, running around here, acting like he Dina from uh, Dream Girls. Like, girl, I'm gonna need you to sit down. I don't know. Oh, like, I'm, I was really upset. Like, boy, he's acting like. He is just pulling down all these. He's making these movies, and but that's his friend, though. James is his friend. So and think about how we are with our friends. We'll be out here. Like think about things we've done. We've been out here about to, you know, run over 
our friend's boyfriends because of stuff they've done. So, you know, he's just doing, he's, he's, he's being a loyal friend. I guess. <laughs> Even my loyalty, my loyalty has limits. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Shit. Do we have anything else uh, for Aunt Mace T? That is it. That's all the, the stuff that's going on right now. I mean, every, I mean, that is geeky and mostly gay related. I mean, you know, there's always um, white gay issues going on, but we don't have to always put focus on those. <laughs> we, go. we don't have time for that. We'd be here all damn day. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. All right, we are back. And Nick, what are we going to do today? You know, it's been a while since we've talked about it. So I'm, I'm glad that we have Matthew here to give some more insight. We're going to talk about the season 10 of Drag Race as a whole and, you know, give our thoughts about the, the season in its entirety and maybe what we want to see in the next season, if we want to see it at all, <laughs> if, the, <laughs> if the show should just go on hiatus, which, you know, that is actually a wishful thinking. But, and I'll pose these uh, couple, these few questions to, you know, everybody. So what were y'all's initial thoughts of season 10 cast when, it, when everybody was introduced? Like, did you have any favorites? Uh, anyone that you knew prior to their announcement? Any dark horses that you were rooting for? Give me all the tea. Let me say this. Um, there, when the cast was announced, and I, uh, I thought that it was probably one of the best single season casts that there had ever been of, of just one season. I mean, it's probably up there for me with like season six. Mm -hmm. having one of the just strongest overall casts um and throughout probably the first half of the season i felt like season 10 was gunning to be among the top seasons ever that drag race had ever made um you know there were there were five great black queens that i felt Mm -hmm. redefined what a black queen could be and do on the show um, and my early favorite was Monet Exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was from like the promos and stuff. And then once I was watching the show, obviously Monique Hart, who was like a goddess and is just <laughs> like, I love Monique so much. She's also hosted um, some stuff at Grindr because I, you know, I write for Into, which is owned by Grindr. So she's been at some Grindr events and I've met her and she's literally stunning and amazing. Um, so those were my favorites throughout season. But yeah, I definitely felt like, you know, and when I say it's one of the all-time great casts, I just feel like, you know, as much as we, like the, the top half of, let's say season five is stacked, you know, like Jinx, Roxy, Jinx and Relaska Talks and Alyssa Edwards and stuff. Mm-hmm. Once you get down to the bottom of season five, like the Honey Mahoganies and the Vivian Panays, you know, there are some <laughs> Um, but this felt like, I mean, you had someone like Mayhem Miller leave and end up in, I think it was, was it ninth place, maybe? I believe so. I know she went out on that, uh, when they had to do the country 
right. runway look. That, that put her in ninth place. And like Mayhem is such a strong um, is such a strong queen and had won the first challenge and had the kind of um, auspicious record uh, that uh, her sister, her drag sister, Morgan McMichaels had because Morgan McMichaels also won the first challenge. And then mm-hmm. I think eliminated ninth or 10th. Oh, so she was ranked 10th. I apologize. Um, so she was ranked 10th and I believe Morgan McMichaels had a similar ranking too after winning the first challenge. So when you think about like someone like Mayhem ranking 10th, you know, Mayhem is a memorable queen who had a lot of stunning looks. I mean, the feather look that she did was amazing. Yeah. And right, I even right. think that in another season, like if you put someone who's not even, you know, the best queen, like Dusty Ray Bottoms, if you put her in season five or season seven, she goes much farther than where she did. You know what I mean? Um, right, yeah. I feel like she would have gone farther in another season where maybe there was less stacked talent. So I was so excited on so many levels for season 10. Yeah. Right. I know for me, I didn't know any of the queens prior to their announcement besides Asia. Uh, Asia have worked at a club here um, in Kentucky with my partner. Oh God, this must have been some years ago. I think after she won um, a national pageant, I think Miss, I want to say Miss Gay USA or something like that. Um, so I was familiar with her. Uh, everybody else, I was like, okay, I don't know any of these queens, but already I was rooting for the black ones, obviously. Um, and then, you know, Vanessa, because Alexis is her daughter, um, and then everybody else. So, like you said, I thought the talent was very stacked. Um, I remember seeing Mayhem on some videos uh, when she was performing out. Uh, I re- forgot what the club was, but it was somewhere in L.A. And I was like, oh, and this was must have been like, maybe five or six years ago. And I was like, wow, she would be good for Drag Race. And then I kept on hearing rumblings throughout the seasons that, oh, maybe Mayhem is going to compete or maybe she's got got on. And then finally she got on and I was like, okay, good. I know this is going to be a really good season. And the season as a whole, I thought was good. I'm sure there we'll get to some points um, of discussion about how the season got dragged down. But I was very excited at the level of talent when the queens were first introduced. Yes. Yeah. And I agree with all of y'all. It was, it looked like an interesting group and I come in and out of drag race. So I'm not like, a, like avid about it, but I come in and out and I remember Vixen, basically the black queens always stick out to me, but I was looking for, I was looking for somebody who would be like Alyssa to me, because I feel like Alyssa Edwards kind of stuck with me after that season. Um, I really did. Well, I, well, what's her name kind of fell into that, but I kind of stuck with the Black Queen because it was a lot more than than what we've seen in a while. Uh, I think we haven't had that many since what the second season, yeah. um, and so it was like um, I want to see who's going to come out because a part of me was like it's going to be a Black Queen this year, um, but. The Vixen kind of stuck out to me, um, and <laughs> sadly, the one that got kicked off, Miss Vanjie, I thought had potential, <laughs> but <laughs> but that's not up to me. But you know, mostly, I was looking at Vixen when I was coming in and out. Mm-hmm. 
Now, what were some of your all's favorite runway looks throughout the season? Wow. I know for me, uh, Asia's, her daffodil look, mm-hmm. that was very, it was avant-garde. It was on, well, it was on brand for her because she's, she's a pageant queen. So, you know, and she's from Texas. So bigger, the bigger, the better for her. Um, I think, uh, what's her name? Cameron Michaels, her wing look, her feather look was very, uh, another avant-garde. I actually, I think everybody during that challenge, aside from Yuha, uh, did very good on that. So what about- go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I always have to shout out from season 10, I always have to shout out my girl Asia O'Hara's iconic mermaid fantasy look with the fish head. <laughs> I still gag over every time I see it. Like, just the straight up audacity and even Asia O'Hara's glitterific runway look where she did the clown. I think Asia just rocked the runway for me this year, Mm -hmm. um, this season. And, you know, just so many ways that I think she really continuously surprised you, you know, the daffodil look was her hat's incredible look. She had the fish look. She had, I even loved her silver Fox look when she did the more comical take because you didn't expect her. Um, and she came out and it was so funny and so good. And she was wearing those flip-flops. Oh my God, it was hysterical. Um, so I was just like really proud every time I saw Asia on the runway. One of my favorite looks also is the Denim and Diamonds runway. Uh, Vixen's Denim and Diamonds look that was very um, like very mermaid-like. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mm-hmm. love that look. Yeah, that was a cute look. That was a very cute look. It was pageant ready. I would, uh, I would wear that in uh, some uh, evening gown competition, but you know that's just me. I was surprised <laughs> of Aquarius, um, her fashion references, like um, like her mermaid. She took it a different route, yeah. and even though she was a younger queen, she had a a level of sophistication with some of her looks like um the when they had to do the two looks the winter and the summer looks for apocalypse Mm -hmm. those were two very strong editorial looks in my opinion yeah now what were some of your looks your favorite looks victor um i did like aquarius mermaid i did like that whole old slick look (laughs) to it um, the feathers were cute because it reminded me when I wanted to be a designer and I was, you know, late 80s, it was all about shoulder pads, feathers, fur. And I like a lot of that look because some of it was giving you some villain, some of you were giving you cocktail, some of it was giving, you know, the witch. And it was giving you so many different things. Um, I did like Aquarius denim look um, just because it was something, it just screamed, um, hee-haw, Barbie, ho. It gave me all those things. Um, it reminded me a little bit of Kentucky, like how 
you know, like how some of the girls would dress when they want to go to the, you know, the little rodeo event. Um, I just, I, you know, there was some times, um, I kind of, and nobody, I don't think people really liked this as much, but I kind of liked um, um, Vixen's feather look. I did kind of like it a little bit. It was a little bit of, it gave me pizzazz. It gave me what pizzazz would wear, like. Pizzazz at the Met Gala. Yeah, it's like, this is pizzazz, and she's coming in this. Uh, maybe because, you know, Vixen had the hair. But it just gave me a little bit of that. Because I always like to, when I look at their fashions, I always think of Gemini holograms. That's how I like to do it. Because um, it's like, oh, I can see, you know, so-and-so wearing this. Um, and if they're wearing it, that means it's going to work really well. Um, but yeah, I like some of the denim look. I like um, the interesting mermaid looks. <laughs> Uh, it was just so much that was really cute this year. And um, I, I want, and I guess, you know, when, when they came back for reunion, they all had some interesting looks too. And, and Vixen's look was cute. I'll give... Sorry, sorry, sorry. A video auto-played on my thing. <laughs> sorry. Oh, we didn't hear it. <laughs> oh, but um, the interesting thing was, I mean, I don't, I'll give a little bit of credit to... Um, Eureka, she had some cute looks at times. I'll give her some not that uh, cat suit. No, because but, I don't uh, <laughs> it was enough. Um, Listen, I know exactly who made that cat suit, and she paid too much for it. Oh my god! <laughs> so yeah, that that's all I really had. I mean, I always like some looks, but that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> let's go ahead and talk about race because race and race played a very important part in this season and i didn't think it would be addressed in a way that it was so do you think it has finally opened up a dialogue between the 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 way black queens are treated versus white queens or do you think things will get talked about and then go back to normal so let me just say that i've written a lot about this on the internet to a lot of to varying degrees of success uh for you know what people have you know said about it or whatever but i actually feel like it's correct. It's more correct to say that the queens, specifically the vixen, were ready to talk about race, but the show itself is not. And so, the so you know, I think that the vixen brought up race for the first time when she really spoke to Aquaria and said, "Listen, this is how it's going to be framed. It's going to be, uh, you know, the vixen is beating up on poor little Aquaria. A black queen is getting angry at a little frail white queen. And that's how the one, the fandom is going to take it. And that's how it's going to be portrayed on TV. Because when you're a yeah. person of color on TV and you have a point, you're automatically taken as aggressive. Um, and that's, you know, it doesn't mean that the, I mean, there's so many ways to talk about this because we all live in America. And so we are all racist and we're all unlearning racism. And uh, you know, a lot of our media tropes are racist because of that point. So it's like, I'm not saying that the person who edited the thing went in with like a racist intent. I'm saying that we just cast people of color as villains because that is an easy media trope that we understand so readily that both it's easy for the editor to slip into it and it's easy for the audience to receive it, even if it's not there. Um, 
So the victim was very savvy in talking about optics um, and how that would play out. But the funny thing is, as much as the vixen spoke about race and how things would be perceived, the show was not really willing to have that conversation. It showed her talking about that, you know, and of course un the untucks are edited way in advance. You know, it's like they don't know the conversations that they're gonna engender online. And then when the reunion happened, the show could have chosen to be like, hey, Vixen, um, you know, when they go around and talk to each queen, hey, Vixen, you started this huge conversation online about race and racism in the fandom, and you ended up on several um, most influential lists, and your career has taken off because you decided to speak up. But that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. What happened was the show and RuPaul felt like they had to punish her for speaking about it. And, you know, RuPaul, who's supposed to be there in a moderating capacity, ended up being the person who was, like, sounding the charge against the Vixen, the, the, the toughest, you know? It was like, you know, if RuPaul's supposed to be there so the girls can talk and she's supposed to moderate, she was being aggressive. I mean, even that, I don't want to say that because RuPaul is Black and I don't want to put that label on her. But I think RuPaul was acting in a way that was very unfair towards the Vixen, I think she was very unfair and I think she was being very aggressive towards her uh, in regards to Vixen and the incident uh, with her and Eureka. I felt that the Vixen, I'm so glad that they didn't edit that the exchange between the Vixen and Aquaria, how the Vixen was saying me talking to you would be, I would be portrayed as the stereotypical angry sassy black bitch mm -hmm. against your lily white skin i'm glad that they didn't they left that in there because that needed to be seen because oftentimes black people are always perceived as aggressive when we're just like you said just trying to get a point across or trying to be assertive right mm -hmm. and in regards to the vixen and eureka that that I was already iffy about Eureka because she reminded me of a lot of gay white men here that they have to be loud and they have to talk all the time just to hear their themselves. And I was like, okay, you know what? Maybe it's just me not giving her a chance. So let me put those feelings aside and give her the benefit of the doubt. And now that whole exchange between her and Vixen, I was like, okay, you know what? I should have listened to myself because she is exactly the same people that I stay away from. And that, what did you all think about that whole exchange in um, backstage between her and Vixen? It was really sad because that was a moment where we could have saw a different side of Rue. Um, or we could have saw a different side of how that could have been done or played out. Um, and still seeing how, you know, some of these people were still playing the victim, but also that could have been that moment where everything could have shift. Um, and it didn't. It made me, it made, it, 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 like, it was kind of hard, but it made me really look at Rue a whole different way that I didn't want to, but I kind of realized that, that I had to. Um, and also reminded me, I think we talked about this before, Nick, about how like the old guard, especially the old guard of black gays are 
coming at things from a different way different perspective and not really willing to be aware of the new perspective that's something i have to think about as a person over 40 is like understanding there's a new generation that you know have no problem posting things about themselves right off the bat or different than what we were back in the day and so have to be open to all that it's very interesting and stuff like that Mm -hmm. i was very uh, with uh, regards to the vixen and the rue having that exchange i was not surprised that rue acted the way that she did because like you said we've talked about how these older gay black men think that there's some kind of if, if if younger gay black people want success, then that's somehow taken away from their success. Yeah. And you see it, you know, not just in gay black men, but you see it in black people in general, especially when they get to a certain level of wealth, they feel that that wealth makes them closer to whiteness. And I feel that Rue has been drunk off that that whiteness and i it's just i'm not surprised that she acts the way that she acts yeah um you know what's interesting is and this 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 might be the first time that i've kind of said this out louder or phrased it this way but you know the vixen when i interviewed her i interviewed her the day the reunion was going to come out and she spoke to me about how, you know, seeing RuPaul as a young kid, I don't know if you remember that year that Ru, um, I forget if it was the MTV movie or MTV video music awards, but she, um, you know, uh, presented at the awards with Milton Berle and he got very disrespectful with her and she kind of let him have it right there on stage and said some, and you know, called him out basically and she talked about how important that moment was to her and how RuPaul used to be a person who would call out and and felt like you know that's what they were down and about and that now that RuPaul is embedded in these structures of power that's not something that she prioritizes anymore and that she's become a gatekeeper from from after becoming someone who was trying to kick down the gates right so RuPaul mm-hmm. has changed in the role that they're playing. But now I think about it too, you know, I think about my own time in therapy and how like I always talk with my therapist about how human, human, human actions, a lot of them come down to like acts of love and acts of fear. And I think about like as a, an older gay black man who's made it in a, in a system like Hollywood that is not supposed to be for gay black men to make it in mm-hmm. how much of the way RuPaul acts, you know, she's all about love, 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 but how much of it is actually an act out of fear that she might lose the power that she's amassed, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe it's coming from this place of like, just now, you know, having worked so hard to make it and, and fearing being called racist or fearing having all these things, you know, just fe- just fear of like losing everything she's worked for. I'm not making excuses for her. I think what she did to the Vixen was terrible and that she obviously has some terrible trans politics and stuff, but I, that's just something that hit me right now that I'm thinking about. That, yes. But no, you touched on something that's very, um, that is very interesting to think about within the communities of color is that fact that I don't know where, we see it a lot. We, you know, that was talked about a lot 
Minaj recently about how, you know, when people of color or black people, what have you, get up in positions of power, it's this fear of losing it all instead of sharing it. And I always feel like we should share it. I always make the joke that if I ever got famous as an older black gay man, I'm going to be, I want others to join me. I don't want to be alone. I want to make sure it's enough for everybody to shine and see different sides of us and see different parts of our talents and creativity. And I, I feel like Rue has this thing that it's all, yeah, I worked hard for this, so this all be, should be for me. Um, the same as we see with Lee Daniels, I've kind of said things like that. Um, and it has cost Lee Daniels, as we have seen, um, when we see, you know, stuff come out, out in the light. So I, I really, it, it's kind of disappointing because I'll be really ugly honest right now. We're seeing this now as we see some of our young gay black men who are kind of rising up. You know, you kind of see them really clink, have this very interesting relationship with whiteness. Um, but at the same time kind of talk about, you know, their blackness, you know, you kind of see a little bit of like, mm, well, where, where are you in this? And, and you know, if, being honest, where are you? So it's like, it's interesting to see what happens when you do rise up. Do you, are you fighting to, to keep your whiteness or that white connection? Or are you fighting to keep your blackness at, at, at bay or even at, at or, no, I, I, it's kind of hard to put my head around it because I'm always like kind of confused with like, what are you doing? Because one minute you're talking about blackness, but basically what you're surrounded by is whiteness. So what does that really mean? So I'm seeing that a lot. Um, and I wonder if that's just something that is just, it's a vicious cycle we don't know how to break yet, if I'm making any sense. But yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. It's like a lot of, wealthy gay black man want to feel cloaked in their proximity to whiteness but then they don't want that they don't want their blackness to interfere with their success but they want to identify as black only when it suits them it's just it's a complicated issue and rue is not the first he's not going to be the last I just wish that he would get out of his own way. Because mm -hmm. he is, he, it feels like he, he's sending, he's saying one thing, but his actions are doing an entirely different other thing. Yeah. And it's sad because so many people look up to him, especially black people that look up to him, and he's doing it that way. Now, speaking of Rue, you know, lately he's been in the the news because of the interview that he had, uh, well, the interview with Pearl from, uh, what was she, season seven, and his uh, past trans remarks. Do you think that will have an effect on the audience view of next season? Or do you think that that doesn't matter. There's already an established fan base that no matter what Rue says, they'll be, they'll be here for it. Let me say that I think that RuPaul just continually gets passes for everything that um, he does. He does not get brought to task by white gay men enough, in my opinion. I think that 
a lot of the same gay black men, I mean, sorry, a lot of the same gay white men who like have Black Lives Matter on their like into profile or whatever will then just like gloss over the fact that like Rue completely railroaded the vixen or, you know, trans lives matter and then like refuses to acknowledge the, sh- the fucked up shit that like Rue has said about trans people. And then we'll continue to just go to the bar and support the show and support Rue and like share gifts of her and blah, blah, blah. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, 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 she for some reason gets a pass. And, and I've talked about this with my co-host of the Kiki. So for those who know or don't know, I have, we, you know, I have a, a drag race, re- not, it's not a recap show. It's more like an analysis show called the Kiki through into. And we talk about the show really. Very good. And thank you. And we've talked about um, that in a lot of ways. It does feel like sometimes Rue gets a pass because Rue is black, but that doesn't mean that they're, it's like one of those skin folk, kin folk things, right? Like it's like Rue's race mm-hmm. politics are not always the best yeah. um, just because they are black. So I do feel like there is room, more room for critical analysis of Rue. And I do think that it's time to start the conversation about perhaps what the show looks like post Rue, right? I mean, I think that there is, a legitimate conversation to have about um, the show is on VH1 because Logo wasn't big enough and the show wants to go further and it wants to create a larger audience and it wants a mainstream audience. I mean, as much as I complain about how the show basically caters to like 10 year old girls at this point, um, (laughs) that's the audience that the show wants. Like it wants, the, the, it wants kids who watch VH1 and like, you know, glittery guys in dresses and that's whatever. Um, but if it widens that audience, I think it is going to have to look beyond RuPaul to do that. And I would love to see someone, even if it's still called RuPaul's Drag Race or then if it just becomes Drag Race, but we have someone else in that role, I think Shangela should be that person. Yeah. That, yeah. that is me. Um, but Yeah. That's a hell of a consolation prize for uh, not... Uh, for the All-Stars 3 fuckery. Oh, my gosh, child. Yeah, that whole... Nothing matters until the last performance. That is ridiculous. That's not- Nothing matters unless that camera is rolling. <laughs> As we would tell Pearl. Oh, my God. No, Matthew, that's a good point. I, I, I have thought about what would be like without Rue, you know, what if the producer, you know what, we can do this without, because I remember the statement Rue was like, I'm keeping the lights on in logo. And yeah, and I was like, okay, okay, that's very bold of you. I said, remember someone else said something similar like that and we lost Noah's art. So you know, I was like sitting there at one point thinking you might want to be careful because they will, they can let you go. But um, I wonder what, if they have, if it crossed their minds and they wanted it, because let's be honest, are we watching? I don't think anybody's watching it for Rue. I think everybody's watching it for the girls. And I think, right, Shangela comes in. Shangela would be like, you know, we'll bring in a newer group because Shangela is very popular, very popular. Yeah. Uh, and I think that might be fun. Actually, I would prefer that. I would actually watch it more because of Shangela. Um, I just, I just don't really find Rue can do anything else for us. I feel like you've done this. That's cute. Now you go off with your um, boyfriend and y'all continue to do, you know, white things and that'd be great. But he has a six foot four Wyoming rancher boyfriend. Mm -hmm. He'll be fine. Yeah. 
Hi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, he is. They live on a ranch in Wyoming. Isn't that what uh, that one gay guy in Holiday Heart did? They, <laughs> I'm thinking about Holiday Heart. Oh my God, a Holiday Heart <laughs> reference. I'm living. Okay, but Bing, Bing Rames was snatched in that movie. Yes. Not when she go. <laughs> she wasn't, but... You know, I love that movie, and I love Bing Rames, and I love Alfred Woodard in that movie. That's the real key, is that Alfred Woodard Oh, is my God. We may have to talk about this movie someday, but that was that was a hard movie to watch because I, Alfred Woodard played that role to a point. I was like, I, 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 was, I didn't know how to feel anymore. He played I, it too real, it. you know? Yeah, she played it way too well. I was like, ooh, damn, that is like pookie down from the street. Truly. <laughs> like, shit. But oh my god! Um, so let's let's go ahead and uh, I'll try to wrap up here uh, as far as the questionings. Will you all be here for the next season? So <laughs> I, I was waiting to see who would go first. I will say that I am someone who watches Drag Race culturally, and mm-hmm. that like you know I, I I work for a site that covers a lot of it, so I will watch culturally, because I also want to be in a lot of conversations that are having, but I'm more skeptical than ever also as to whether VH1 can pull off a good season of Drag Race at this point. Because one thing we didn't talk about is even though I brought up how good the first half was, Mm -hmm. um, the back half of season 10 was a mess. And if one of the things they need to do is go back to basics about how to write a good how to just how to have a good storyline for the show and and how to pick the girls right and how to have good storylines because season both season nine ten and as three for me which are all the vh1 seasons have not been it in terms of those things yeah um mm-hmm. so i just want to see them go back to basics and rewatch seasons like two five three and like how to construct a storyline that is compelling <laughs> There's a eerie part of me, and I think Kid Fury said this, and I kind of wanted to say the same thing. If Mona Scott took over, oh hell no! I, I'm, I'm <laughs> only because I feel like we will. It, when these moments, I think with Mona, there will always be a confrontation. There will be nothing that escapes through the through anything. She would be like, yeah, it'd be like, so, you know, Eureka, you said this, and here's the clip of you say it, and here's, like, the video, and here's reactions. Like, it, it'll be something like that, and I, and I kind of think Mona would give us, well, of course, give us the trash, but give accountability, sadly, in the way that we probably wouldn't want that accountability. I can't even say it. Accountability. Eh. But I think we would actually get it. I think we actually get a show that what really push them. I hate saying that because I, I think about loving hip hop. But anyway, it's, I, I think it basically under new producers, um, I think the show could get better because I think the producers they have now are, mm, I just think they might want to change over guard. I know as far as me, like I am in the drag world like every day because my partner does drag, he sews, he works at a club. So that drag life 
is way different from the show. And, you know, sometimes you just get tired of drag. Um, and I want to, I, I don't know if I'll be there for the season. I know one of the queens that's going to be on the show. But I don't know. It might be time for me to step away from Drag Race only because I know real life drag is just not like what the show portrays and people acting like that's the only way drag is irritates me a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, like sometimes a lot of these new kids think that <clears throat> if you're not on Drag Race, then you're not a real queen. I'm like, well, hold on. My partner's been doing drag for 14 years. Works at a club or has worked at two clubs, has done a lot of charity work. I've done drag. So it's just like, don't tell me that Drag Race is the only drag because I know that is a bold-faced lie. Mm -hmm. And I, you know what? I'm probably talking about the other side of my mouth and I will be here for season episode one of season 11. But I'm looking at the show with different, especially after this season, I'm looking at it in a different way. And a lot of what I see, I just don't like anymore. Hmm. Yeah, sadly, that's, what it, that's how I kind of feel too, but I'll still check in. Yeah, from time to time, but, you know, maybe like a a live uh, tweeting thing like we did before, uh, I don't know if I'm motivated enough to do that. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll see. So that does bring it into our show. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Thank um, you, if so you for having me. No problem. If you would tell everybody uh, where they can find you on these social media platforms. Sure. So on Twitter, where I'm most active, you can find me at Matthew Rodriguez. Matthew has one T and Rodriguez has a G and a Z. And it's the same handle for Instagram, except after Matthew, there's a K for my middle name. The other one was taken. So the handle is Matthew K Rodriguez. And you can find us on Twitter at Pod. You can find the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook at Pod, on Instagram at Pod. Uh, our website at MegashingPod.com. Um, anything else, Victor, before we get up out of here? Because I am starving. Uh, no. I'm starving too, but I got to make this drive on a 405, so I'll just be starving in the car. But, you know, we'll see how. Um, <laughs> we may have a different episode next week um, because somebody's going to go on vacation. So um, we may have something <laughs> special for y'all next week. Or we may not, but we'll, you, you'll be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, y'all. All right, bye. Bye.